Alrighty, so this is the class on Heaven, Hell, and All Stops in Between. Uh, we're going to talk about the communion of saints today. We're going to talk about the end of all things. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people have a lot of questions about this. And this will dovetail very naturally into the next class. We're going to talk about Mary. So today we're going to talk about the saints in general. And then next class we'll talk about Mary in particular. Uh, she is kind of the preeminent uh, saint of all of the uh, of all of the saints. So, um, I guess we'll just kind of jump right into things. Obviously, if you have any questions, feel free to leave them in the comments down below. Feel free to, uh, you know, like, share, subscribe. Uh, always gives me a little dopamine boost that encourages me to keep making these videos and putting them out there. Um, so this will be RCA Class 7. So we're created for communion with God. Again, in the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis, why does God, who is himself love, uh, reveal to us that, you know, why does he create, right? Why, why make us at all? And the only reason for an all good, all perfect, all sufficient God to create again is because he's love. And what love does is freely give of itself, expecting nothing in return. So we are created by love himself for the sake of love to know love. And, uh, that's really it, right? We're destined, uh, for heaven. We are, we are designed for heaven. However, original sin, this fault uh, that, that occurred in our uh, primeval history, pre, primordial history, um, before written history, uh, something in our foundation went awry due to a choice freely made uh, by our first uh, progenitors, our first parents, um, and it shattered our relationship with our creator. Uh, shattered our relationship with the world around us uh, and with each other as well. And so the rest of salvation history has basically been God's plan of bringing about the reconciliation uh, of all of us. And again, he does it in the Old Testament progressively through larger and larger uh, covenants. These covenants are done primarily just for God to be able to show his hand to the nations um, working through his people until he's ready for the universal new and everlasting covenant, uh, which, of course, is what we have inside of the Catholic Church. Uh, and that is, you know, the, the primary means by which he brings the world into reconciliation. Uh, St. Paul speaks about, you know, the ministry of reconciliation given to the church. Of course, the church is the dispenser of the sacraments and, and uh, the guardian of the truth, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Uh, according to scripture itself, which we, we've discussed all that leading up to this. Obviously, if you haven't seen those classes, you may want to go back and see uh, particularly classes uh, five and six. Yeah, five and six uh, on the church and then scripture and tradition, because um, those will go a lot into explaining um, you know, why the church is who she says she is, uh, why she is the institution that Jesus founded, etc. So make sure you're clear on that stuff. So with original sin comes death. And again, God's plan of reconciling us to himself through himself. Death, for lack of a better term, oh, by the way, this is from, um, these, there's a bunch of tapestries. These are, these are woven um, at Our Lady of the Angels Cathedral, I think it is, in, um, in Los Angeles. And I think they're absolutely beautiful because it's, it's supposed to be all of the saints in heaven. And I just love how, how realistic they are, especially considering these are tapestries. This is a very low res picture. Uh, and of course it's, you know, being filmed on my computer. So you're not gonna be able to see it really well, but you can see these if you go to their website, our lady of the angels, our lady queen of angels, something like that. It's a, it's the Los Angeles cathedral anyway. 
There we go. Sorry about that. So death is part of the equation because of original sin, for better or worse. Death is the moment when we enter into eternity after having been in this life. And hopefully we enter into eternity prepared to encounter absolute love himself. When we die, we face first a particular judgment. So at the moment of our death, we're going to be judged immediately. We're going to know where we stand, whether we're heaven-bound or hell-bound. And if heaven-bound, we may go undergo, and, and many of us will probably undergo, some kind of purification um, in order to be ready for heaven because we know that nothing unclean enters heaven. Um, but we know that we die attached to sin. We call that state purgatory. We'll talk a lot more about that in a few minutes. Uh, and then, of course, at the end of all things, there's the universal or general judgment of all people. And it's at this moment that we all receive, you know, the full resurrection. Uh, we all receive our bodies. And it is for everybody, right? St. Paul says, I have the same hope in God as they themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and of the unrighteous. And, of course, we have that line from uh, Daniel uh, that I read uh, a week or so ago. We talked about Jesus talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, or talking to the Sadducees, rather, uh, about the uh, resurrection. Daniel speaks of, you know, many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall wake. Uh, some to everlasting life and some to uh, everlasting or shame, everlasting, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Um, and it, this this doesn't seem to say uh, there's different ways to read this, but this is just one English translation that I pulled up really quickly. Um, it's basically everybody. It's not like some people are just going to, you know, sit there and, and not be resurrected. And some people will be resurrected to everlasting contempt, as far as we can tell. Uh, everyone is, as St. Paul tells us. Uh, and St. Paul is going to have, of course, more... Um, clarity and uh, his focus is much more on the resurrection so uh, after death comes heaven hell or something else <laughs> heaven we speak of the church triumphant these are the people who have in the words of saint paul fought the good fight and finished the heaven is our ultimate goal it's what we are designed for uh, and it's not necessarily at least you know harps and and flowers and and wings in fact those things may not enter into it hardly at all they might obviously uh, I have my doubts but they might uh, heaven primarily is the state of perfect communion with God God who is himself love we are completely filled to the brim with his love. And um, I give an analogy. Uh, in fact, one of the next classes I do will be on sacramental economy. In fact, I'll make it the next video after this in the series. Um, I talk about how we are designed to be vessels for grace uh, initially. And so in heaven, we're, we'll find that we are all completely filled as much as possible with the grace of God, which is his very life living in us. Now, some people may be bigger vessels and some people may be smaller vessels, depending upon what we do in this life. Right. Paul speaks of the, the various crowns of glory that we might wear uh, in heaven based upon the good that we do in this life and our ability to uh, participate uh, with grace and, and, and everything else. Uh, but the point is, in heaven, we will all be completely filled as much as we are able uh, with the uh, the love of God. And what's interesting about this is, you know, in, in heaven, there's not going to be jealousy or envy or anything like that. So you might see, you know, I might be a little vessel, a tiny little vessel, and someone like, you know, Paul or Peter, uh, Mary, obviously, uh, maybe a Mother Teresa or somebody like that, they might be a much larger vessel for grace in heaven, having dedicated so much more of their life uh, to the gospel and to love and to conforming themselves to the image of Christ than I'm able to do in my life, right? And in heaven, we'll see those people and we will simply marvel at them, right? We're not going to feel petty, 
jealousy or, or envy. You could no more feel uh, envious of Mother Teresa or Mary for the amount of glory that, that they will have in heaven as you could for the amount of beauty in a sunset, right? Or a sunrise. You know, are you, are you envious of the sunrise when you see it? Or do you just look at it and go, wow, you know, glory, glory to God, right? Um, but we don't really know the full nature of heaven. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the very heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. We do know that there is, again, no longer any sin or even attachment to sin in heaven. All selfishness is gone, all wickedness is because as Revelation says, nothing unclean can enter heaven. Um, we talked about this when we talked about the church, but extra ecclesium nullisalis means outside of the church there is no salvation. It simply means that there is no way to heaven. There is no way to heaven but being in the church because the church is what salvation is because the church is the body of Christ and there is no salvation apart from being uh, a part of the body of Christ. Uh, there is no other salvation in any other path, any other deity or anything like that. But that does not mean... Because we know that God is just and God is merciful and he judges the heart and he wills the salvation of all. Um, we have a bunch of different reasons to understand. Like like when he goes down to, to in, in 1 Peter 3, he preaches to the, the spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah, right? And he, he's not just doing a victory lapse and saying, you know, ha ha, you guys are damned to all eternity. He is, we call this the harrowing of, of hell. And he is announcing the gospel. And, you know, he speaks to the thief uh, on the cross. We'll talk about that thief in a few minutes and says, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, that thief hasn't had a chance to do anything like, you know, be baptized or not. So we know that God can work outside of this world. And we know that uh, we have a lot of different parables and, and stuff where God speaks about. Um, he says he says of the of the scribes and Pharisees that, you know, because they say that they know their, their sin remains. But if they didn't know, if they didn't see, uh, then they would not have sin. Uh, and so our 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 knowledge of of sin uh, and what is and is not sinful plays a big part in our blame or our responsibility for our sins. So people who have, through no fault of their own, never um, never encountered the Christian message, people who, through no fault of their own, have, have never heard of Jesus, or maybe they've heard of him, but they've only heard of him from people who are abusive, terrible people, right? That definitely happens, unfortunately. It's it's an absolute scandal and a shame, but it does happen. So it, it doesn't mean that, that people who have never, through no fault of their own, followed the Christian path are simply guaranteed hell, right? We trust that God is just and merciful and judges the heart. It also doesn't mean that card-carrying members of the Catholic Church are guaranteed for heaven, right? Paul himself knew that he could be disqualified. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. If you're going to be qualified for something and then disqualified, it means quite clearly you can simply, you can lose your salvation. Um, we also see uh, Peter talks about this in Second uh, Peter. I'll pull it up here on the other screen here. Uh, two twenty uh, to twenty-two, and it says, um, "They promised them freedom." but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a man to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become the worst for them, more worse than the first. It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to have turned back 
from the holy commandment delivered to them. We see this in lots of different places. Um, you know, that's why we're told to persist, right? We have to, we have to keep the faith. You have to fight the good fight and finish the race, right? You have to get holy or die trying, <laughs> so to speak. You know, we're, we're, there's a lot of different analogies that, that make sense here. Jesus talks about being the, the true vine. He says, you've been grafted on. Paul says, we've been grafted onto the vine. But if you don't bear fruit, you can be pruned right back off, right? Um, so there's lots of different places that speak about being able to lose your salvation. So so don't rest on your laurels thinking that just because you're in the Catholic Church, you're guaranteed heaven. Nobody is guaranteed heaven. You must persist until the end. Um so just remember that, right? Um, the Catechism says a human must always obey the certain just the certain judgments of their conscience, uh, and if he were to deliberately act against it, he would condemn himself. Yet it can happen that moral conscience remains in ignorance and makes erroneous judgments about acts to be performed or already committed. So we are obliged to follow our conscience, but we're also obliged to form our conscience, make sure our conscience is formed correctly. Uh, and you can you can be in what's called invincible ignorance. So if you've never heard of the Catholic Church, you don't know what it is, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that that can happen, then you're persisting in what is objectively, looking from the outside, uh, a, a not a good state, not a good place to be. But subjectively, if you don't know any better and you're doing your best, God sees that. And again, he himself tells us that he judges the heart. So those who have fought the good fight and finished the race wind up in heaven. We call them the church triumphant. Um, we'll see later that they are aware of us. They're martyrs. They're witnesses. Um, they see those on earth. They offer our prayers to God, etc. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, those who have died but are not yet in heaven but are heaven bound we call the church suffering. Uh, we speak of them as being in a place often called or a state called purgatory. So just like heaven primarily is there, there is definitely a physical aspect to it it's the bodily resurrection um but when we when we as catholics speak of heaven we mean primarily the state of being in perfect communion with god because we don't really know what heaven's gonna look like so too purgatory and purgatory is even less a place though there may be again some bodily aspect to it purgatory is for for lack of a better word it's a state of being it's a state of being cleansed again nothing unclean will enter heaven that means no sin no attachment to sin but we do sin in this life even after accepting the love and the grace of god offered through his son and through the sacraments therefore some change has to occur between the moment of our death and our complete entrance into heaven we will be fully cleansed uh or cleaned or purged of our sin and to this state of affairs catholics give the name purgatory. Um, you can find the Catholic Church, uh, the Catechism talking about it in paragraphs uh, 1030 to 1032. Um, again, purgatory is not an end destination. A lot of people think of it as like a, a third place, right? It's not. Um, it's not even necessarily temporal, right? We don't really understand how we will experience time. It could be that purgatory is over in the snap of a finger, but depending upon your need, you know, somebody, j just like in this life, if you're really enjoying yourself and having a good time, time flies by. And if you're really having a boring or even a terrible time, it seems to drag on forever. So our, our perception of, it, of of purgatory could be uh, relative even to... Um, to, to the level of cleanliness that that we require, right? The, the, the level of detachment from sin that we uh, require. We can find support for this doctrine in a lot of different places. And actually, I keep I always mean to put this here. There we go. I guess it's there. Um, one of the big ones that people often cite is 1 Corinthians 10 through 15. Um, let me just go ahead and pull that up. Hang on. All right. So here we go. This is uh, 1 
Corinthians uh, 3, verses 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. So this is kind of like speaking of like, the moment that we accept Christ, um, you know, that he becomes the foundation and then somebody else is building on it because we're cooperating with grace. But then he kind of switches a little bit. says, each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's been laid, which is that that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, so we have three things that are good, these you represent good works, uh, corporate works of mercy, spiritual works of mercy, uh, etc. And also wood, hay, and straw, uh, which represent things that are, you know, uh, attachments to this world, sin, etc. The works of each builder will become visible for the day. Paul often speaks of the day, and the day means the day of judgment. The day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Uh, if what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. And so here we see pretty clearly Paul is speaking essentially of... Uh, a state of purgatory. So on the day of judgment, we are judged. And, you know, God is oftentimes spoken of as a refining fire, right? And what does a refining fire do? It, it burns away the impurities and leaves what is good uh, remaining. And so in this in this passage, that's literally what we're seeing is uh, the purification of a soul on the day of judgment. So Paul is very clearly, clearly um, referencing um, the concept of uh, of purgatory here and actually jesus does this um let me see this would be luke 12 um i just do the rsv because i tend to prefer it but not the rsg because i don't know what that is <laughs> uh bible gateway and i have a whole i have a whole video on this stuff right here um jesus himself teaches purgatory and a lot of people i don't know why they, they tend to miss this one um so i'm just going to scroll down to um, the thing here. So Jesus actually gives a bunch of different parables here uh, that are what we call soteriological, which means about salvation, or eschatological, about the end times. And, you know, he, he talks about this. And he says, you know, anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. He's speaking of uh, the end of times. And he gives a parable of the rich fool uh, who, you know, tries to work just for what's in this life. And like the day he decides to, you know, build his, tear down his barns and build larger is the day that he dies. The, the moral of that one is simply you can't take it with you. So, you know, don't don't work simply for material goods that pass away. But, you know, this is all couched in a conversation about the end of all things. Um, you know, and let's see here. Again, you know, sell your possessions, give alms, provide for yourself with purses that do not grow old, with treasures in heaven that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no no moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. Um, and then he gives another parable uh, about uh, keeping, you know, keeping the fire lit basically he says uh you know be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the marriage feast so that they may open to him at once when he comes and knocks blessed are the servants who the master finds awake when he comes truly i say to you he will gird himself and have them sit at table and he will come and serve them as we see jesus comes and serves us right the son of man came to serve and not to be served uh if he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them so blessed are those servants but know this if the householder had known the hour the thief was coming he would not have left his house to be broken into you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an unexpected hour 
the truth of that one is just we die and we don't know when we're going to die. And then there's this little bit here. And we see a parable of four different stewards. Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everybody? And the Lord says, who then is the faithful and wise steward? I love that he uses the phrase steward because, of course, it was the steward of the house of David who received the keys. We see this reference all the way back in Isaiah 22, 22. Um, and of course, Peter himself gets those keys. So he is the, the good and faithful steward who the masters put over his household. And so he's he's telling this this parable uh, and he's liking he's likening the the character in the parable to Peter, but of course he's 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 saying it and he's saying it for everybody again, right? Um, but he's 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 putting Peter into the parable in a real way. He says, "Who's the faithful and wise steward who his master will set over his household uh, to give them the portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who the master, when he comes, will find him doing so." So the 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 servant who knows the master's will and does it is blessed. That's that's servant number one. Servant number two, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and he will punish him. And he will put him with the unfaithful. This is a terrible uh, translation, by the way. The word punish here, I don't know if this is going to have the note here, uh, but the Greek word is dichotomeo. We'll just jump down and see what it says. Yeah, cut him into pieces. Literally means to cut him in half. So he will cut him in half and put him with the unbelievers, right? Uh, so this isn't something that you would normally do just with a, ster a servant in your house. You know, if he's if he's not doing his job, you fire him, right? You kick him to the curb. You don't give him a reference. Um but you don't cut him in half and put him with the unfaithful. So this is, again, clearly an eschatological and soteriological, uh, you know, uh, parable. It's about salvation and about the end. And then he gives us two more servants, though. That servant who knew his master's will but did not make ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But he who did not know and did what deserved a beating shall receive a light beating. Right. And, and obviously, you know, to, to our modern sensibilities, this discussion of servants and beatings seems a little harsh, but this is just a reality. So he's using the, the mental furniture uh, that the people would have had uh, that he was speaking to. Right. But what he's speaking about here is the fact that those who are in ignorance, they may still require um, they, they may still feel what experience because, again, purgatory is not necessarily going to feel wonderful uh, because we have to fully die to our sin and fully give up that sin. And, you know, that may be uh, it's oftentimes the saints and the mystics have spoken about it as a process that is not pleasant. Paul himself again says we're saved as through fire. Right. We know that nobody in hell. Uh, is saved and nobody in heaven suffers loss, but uh, the one in uh, in First Corinthians three, he suffers loss, but he is saved as through fire. That doesn't sound like it's going to be necessarily pleasant, right? And so, and this just kind of makes sense when you really stop to think about it, right? Because if you have, so let me give an extreme example. Let's say you don't know that murder is wrong, <laughs> right? I mean, this is. It's extreme, and and if it, with any example or analogy, if you take it to the logical ends, you can break the analogy. But let's just say you don't know that that murder is wrong, and so you go about your life, you try and be a good person, but you murder a bunch of people, right? It's possible that not knowing that murder is wrong, or even like always being taught that murder is a good thing. Again, this is an extreme example. Um, you may be judged less harshly because you didn't have the correct mental furniture, so to speak. You didn't have the the, the knowledge that this sort of activity uh, is a bad and harmful thing. And so the mark that it leaves on your soul, which is ultimately what determines whether you go to heaven or to hell, um, 
is going to be significantly diminished as opposed to, um, well, you know, as opposed to somebody who willfully engages in something that they that they know is wrong. However, even though your blamability, your culpability for this level of sin may be diminished, nevertheless, clearly, if you're killing people, you're still harming people. So your sin is still objectively a bad thing, even if subjectively you're less blamable for it. And again, we see Jesus speak about this in a lot of different places. So if you are less culpable for your sins, less blamable for your sins, um, you'll be judged accordingly, right? God God will render a just judgment. And so you may still attain heaven, um, but when, when you die and you step into eternity, you may still require uh, a pretty significant purification. Now, that purification for you may be less than somebody who was just, you know, a willful serial killer who loved the sensation of torturing people, right? And, and so it is, right? It, it, we oftentimes, uh, especially separated from the Church of Christ— that, that he founded, that is the pillar and the foundation of truth, we don't have full knowledge of the moral law. And so oftentimes what Christians wind up doing accidentally is they accept poison, right? They accept spiritual poison, whether it's divorce and remarriage, uh, abortion, contraception, gay marriage. Uh, you know, there's a whole host of issues that everybody struggles with and everybody struggles with sin. So it's not like being Catholic means you're free, but it's important to know where the target is, right? Even if you can't hit the target because your, 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 your aim is terrible with the bow and arrow, if you're pointing in the wrong direction, you're definitely never going to get close to the target. And so, you know, the whole point of, of heaven is being, of purgatory is being made ready to be in the presence of God who is perfectly, objectively love itself. And so, the servant who doesn't know um, is going to have to be cleaned up as well, but it may take a lot less because what he did, wrongly he did, merely out of error rather than out of a prideful malice and hate. So uh, hopefully that makes sense. We see a couple other places in, in uh, 2 Maccabees. Um, this is actually a really interesting passage. Um, Judah Maccabee uh, has some men who are fighting, and they're fighting for God's people. And they're fighting the good fight, and they die in battle. And so they, they died defending their faith. But he finds on them uh, tokens for idols or, or, or medals that were uh, for, for, for false idols. And he's like, oh, no, this is not a good state at all. These guys were fighting for us. Uh, they were doing the righteous work of God. But here they have died, and they have these idols on them. And he arranges to have uh, their bodies buried, and, and he has a sacrifice offered on their behalf in Jerusalem. And what's really interesting is the author of Maccabees actually talks about this and says that this was a, a righteous act. Let me just pull this up. All right, so Judas, having gathered together his army, came to the city of Adullam, and when the seventh day came, they purified themselves according to the custom and kept the Sabbath in place. And the day following, Judas came with his company to take away the bodies of them that were slain to bury them with their kinsmen in the sepulchres of their fathers. And they found under the coats of the slain some of the donaries of the idols of Jamnia, uh, which was which the law forbiddeth for the Jews, so that all plainly saw, for this was the cause that they were slain. Then they all blessed the just judgment of the Lord, who had discovered these things that were hidden. And so, betaking themselves in prayer, they besought him, and the sin which had been committed 
that the sin that had been committed might be forgotten. The most valiant Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves from sin, for as much as they saw before their eyes what happened because of the sin of those that were slain. And making a gathering, he sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. And here we go. You know, for if he had not hoped that they were slain, that they should rise again, it would have seemed superfluous to pray for the dead. And because he considered them that had fallen asleep with godliness and had grace laid upon them, it is therefore a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from sins. Uh, this is the Dewey Rames translation. You can find a few other versions. But I mean, literally, it, it literally says it's a good and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. One of the reasons Martin Luther hated <laughs> hated this passage and, and wanted the book of Maccabees thrown out. Uh, we see a couple other places in uh, in Second Timothy one uh, sixteen. St. Paul prays for his deceased friend. Um, so that's 2 Timothy... Uh, Onesephorus. And it's interesting because the language he uses is, um, he uses present tense speaking about his family and then past tense speaking about him. Um, let's see, 16, where are we? May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me eagerly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on the day. And you know well the service that he rendered at Ephesus as well. Um, and so, you know, he's speaking about him only in, in the in the past tense. And most people believe that at this point Onesephorus had died. Uh, and so Paul, you know, rightfully so, is, is, is praying, just like Judah Maccabee, uh, is praying for him. Not necessarily because he was, you know, an idolatry or anything, but just it's a good and, and good practice in general to pray for the dead. And so he was doing that. Um, let's see here. Uh, Luke 12, I just read you some of that. And of course, actually going back to that passage from Luke 12 really, really quickly, uh, it actually ends with another discussion at the bottom, um, about settling with your opponent. So this is another, uh, parable about, you know, the end times it says, you know, don't judge for yourself what is right. Um, or so, sorry. And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, and the word Satan means the the accuser, right? So Satan, <laughs> make an effort to settle with him. I mean, this is this isn't quite right. Um, well, let me just read. The, let me read it, and we'll talk about it. As you go with your, your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out till you have paid the last to the very last copper, paid the very last penny. So, in in this parable, I'm, I'm not saying you need to settle with Satan. That's not what I'm saying. The word Satan, incidentally, Satan, simply means the accuser, right? Um, so there is definitely uh, uh, an and of course, what is Satan but the guy who wants wants you to be in hell and wants you to be in prison? But here we he actually says in this again eschatological soteriological uh, an, a parable here about not getting out until you've paid the very last penny. So it seems to be the case that this prison, this holding place, is itself again not hell, uh, but something else. In fact, here we go. Uh, Jesus teaches, come to terms with your opponents. You'll be handed over and thrown into prison. You'll not get out till you pay the last penny. The word opponent, antidico, is a reference to the devil. Uh, the same word is used in 1 Peter uh, 5, where he says the devil's a lion prowling about the world, um, who's an accuser of man against God the judge. If we've not adequately dealt with Satan in this life and with sin in this life, we will be held in a, stem a temporary state, uh, a prison of a sort, and we won't get out until we satisfy the entire debt 
uh, with God. And that satisfaction just comes in our being made righteous. This prison is essentially is purgatory, where we will not get out until the last penny is paid, till we've made full satisfaction. But it's not that we have to make up for our sins, but rather we have to make up for our attachment to them in our souls. And of course, we can find numerous inscriptions on first century tombs petitioning for prayers for the dead, uh, as well as prayers from the dead, which we'll talk about as well. So again, it seems that prayers for the dead are totally allowable. Um, we'll deal with prayers for the saints here in a few minutes, but the whole point is purgatory is utterly scriptural. We can find all sorts of references to it, and anyone who denies it is simply not reading the scriptures, because there's really no other way to make sense of what Jesus is talking about. Because again, going back to this passage in Luke 12, you know, he speaks of the four different servants. Only one servant is is set with the unbelievers. The other the other three servants are not. Two of them receive a beating, but they're not, you know, set with the unbelievers. They're not cut in half, die katameo, and uh, put with the unbelievers, but they are given either a severe beating or, or a light beating, depending upon the knowledge that they had. But blessed is the one who knows the will of the master and does the will of the master. And we see this in other places too. I mean, Jesus says, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, will inherit the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father. Belief requires obedience. I, I think that's the, the best uh, the best lesson I can give you as far as what, you know, what saves us, faith and works and how they all interplay. Um, let me go here, John 3.36. Um, we'll just do the, we'll do the RSV again. I guess I could have done this inside a Bible gateway already. That's right. Do it on the fly. Um, you'll notice in 336, and you've probably heard me say this in class, but he who believes in the Son of Man has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. So again, belief is a pregnant word, and it entails obedience. So belief will, will, will warrant you eternal life. Disobedience will not. And so disobedience means your faith is not actually faith. Again, the devil has faith in a sense. The devil believes that, that God exists, but his faith is not an obedient faith. And so we need to always make sure that our faith is an obedient faith. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there talking about uh, purgatory. Hopefully that kind of makes sense. Now we'll talk about hell. Um, hell is commonly imaged as fire and brimstone inside of scripture and out. Um, and these are, again, they're, they're meant to be analogical um, they're, they're, they're analogies, right? Um, it's not that hell necessarily is fire and brimstone. Now it might be, I don't want to deny that there could be a physical component of hell and that physical component could actually be suffering. Um, but bear in mind, both heaven and hell are spoken of as places of fire. In fact, um, the highest choir of angels, I guess I have that note down here. The highest choir of angels are called the seraphim, the burning ones, uh, because they behold the face of God and they're literally like on fire all the time. You know, God is, is referred to as a, as a consuming fire as well, but he, he's, he's more of a refining fire, whereas hell is like a fire that wastes, you know, because fire can do multiple things. It can purify, but it can also just completely destroy. And so, you know, hell is like the fire that completely consumes and destroys, whereas Father, God in heaven is like the fire that purifies. Um, so, you know, we, we hear of it spoken of as fire and brimstone, but we also hear heaven spoken of in similar terms. So it doesn't necessarily mean either one of them is going to be a literal state of fire and brimstone. Much like heaven, hell is primarily the state of self-exclusion from communion with God. And that's important, right? God wills nobody to hell, right? God wills the salvation of all, that all might come to repentance and knowledge of the truth through Jesus Christ, right? That's his will. 
But salvation is a two-way street. Uh, God doesn't force us. He wants to, like a lover, elicit a response, right? He doesn't force himself onto us. He entices us to follow him and to seek him and to know him and to love him. And we can choose to say no. And some people do. God does not force love. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, Christianity asserts that an individual human being is going to live forever, and this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things about which it wouldn't be worth bothering if I was only going to live for 70 years or so, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years won't be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell. In a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. And so, you know, as somebody else has said, um, there's two people, two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done, right? And so we either are following a path of humility that leads us to um, accepting grace, which requires us being humble and, and submissive to God, cooperative with God, or we can rebel, right? The original sin in the garden was a sin of pride. Man wanted to be like God, but without God, right? He wanted to put himself uh, above God. And to those who choose that path, God says, if that's your choice, that's your choice. Now, again, we don't know everything about what happens at the end of all things. Um, if God can, can, give those who died in the days of Noah an opportunity to know the gospel. It's certainly possible that even, uh, you know, an, an Adolf Hitler who takes his own life, nevertheless, and this is the radical love, right? Nevertheless, even someone like him could potentially find heaven. And as Christians, as Catholics, we actually hope that he does. We hope that in heaven, as weird as this sounds, we could embrace Adolf Hitler, who would have completely repented of all of the absolutely terrible, sinful, shameful things, or Stalin, or Mao, or Pol Pot, or, or whoever, right? All all of these, these terrible, terrible people who did objectively, gravely, gravely terrible, terrible things uh, in, in their lives. And let me find, hang on one second here. So here's a here's a line from C.S. Lewis again. I, I love Lewis. He's so quotable, and sometimes he just he summarizes things very very precisely. So he says this: what they're always thinking of. Let me go back. He says he says what's always used to puzzle me about Christian writers is they seem to be so strict at one moment and so very free and easy at the next. They talk about mere sins of thought as if they were immensely important, and then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries as if you'd only had to repent and all would be forgiven. But I've come to see that they are right. What they are always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on the tiny central self, which no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands. This is like your Hitler. And another man may be placed that no matter how angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may very much be the same in both. Each has done something to himself, which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage the next time he is tempted. It will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or the smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not 
what really matters. And I've always loved that way to kind of understand sin and how, you know, Hitler was absolutely a terrible, terrible person. That's why we talk about Hitler, right? That's that's why he's a common go-to for, for analogies, right? It's not because he was a great person and a, a wonderful ar- architect and, you know, he, he painted and, and he made the trains run on time, right? No, he was, a, he was a terrible person. He was a monster. He was absolutely a monster. Um, no denying that. But he was still a creature created in the image and likeness of God. And because of that inherent dignity of who he was, because he was created by God with the divine soul uh, in him, you know, a spark of the divine, the the self, the, the hrua, the breath of God in him, right? Because of that, even someone like him, we hope, could attain heaven. It doesn't mean it's likely. doesn't mean I'm expecting to see Hitler in heaven by any means. But we can hope. We are a people of radical hope. All right. So now we're going to talk about limbo. And limbo is something people have a lot of questions about. They've heard about it. Maybe they think it's purgatory. It's not. Uh, maybe they think it's... Um, well, there's, there's, there's two different limbos. And one of them is a real place that is kind of obsolete and doesn't exist anymore. And one of them is merely a theological speculation. What most people are thinking of is the second one, the theological speculation. So I'll deal with the real one first. The real one we call the limbo of the fathers. It has other names in scripture. You'll find it called Sheol or Abraham's bosom and Hades, which is kind of like the good side and the bad side of Sheol. So it's kind of like a, a mini, it's like a, it's like a holding cell, like a prison um, where, the, where the good and the, and the ungood went, the good and, the, and the, the, the righteous went and the unjust and the unrighteous went. Jesus references this in his parable, uh, if it is a parable, uh, about Lazarus and the rich man. It's the only parable that Jesus ever gives that names a person, uh, and a person that he incidentally knew, and a person who actually died and then came back. And that's kind of the point of the of the whole thing, right? Um, but what he's speaking about is, is you know, obviously this is before the resurrection. He talks about him being in Abraham's bosom. He speaks about uh, the rich man being in, in Hades is the word that's borrowed from Greek. Because, of course, the Septuagint's written in Greek. Or the, well, the Septuagint was written in Greek. They spoke Greek. And the, the New Testament uses the Greek words as well. So he, he's, we're told that he's in Hades. Um, and so it seems to be the place that the, the dead would go before Christ had opened the way to heaven. Uh, Christ himself enters Sheol. To preach to the prisons and the the prisons and spirit there, the spirits in prison there. Again, that's that line from First Peter three uh, eighteen to twenty. Um, and we see, you know, in Scripture, Sheol is spoken of a lot of different places. It's personified. You know, I'll go down uh, to my son, a mourner unto Sheol. Uh, it's never satiated. It makes its wide, its throat wide. It swallows people up whole, etc. Right? It's basically a way of speaking about death being inevitable, coming for us all, etc. And so in this capacity, or in this sense, the word limbo, the limbo of the fathers was a real place. But now that Jesus has uh, ascended into heaven and opened the path of heaven, uh, it's kind of no longer necessary, right? That people didn't go to heaven uh, before, but they do now. Uh, secondly, we have the limbo of the infants. And this is what actually a lot of people think of when they think of uh, limbo. And uh, it was popularized primarily um, it was theological speculations popularized a lot by Dante, who who puts it in his Divine Comedy. It's kind of like the antechamber to hell. Um, and the idea goes like this. There are certain people who, because they never received baptism, and Jesus seems to speak very clearly in John 3 that baptism is necessary. And so those who never receive baptism are not, if we take a very legalistic understanding of the sacraments and how they work, are not able to 
receive the grace of God and, and go to heaven. But maybe, you know, for babies who die, uh, children, virtuous pagans, your, your Virgils, your, um, you know, Homer's and, and, you know, the Aristotle and Socrates and, you know, these great minds and philosophers, your, your virtuous pagans, right? Maybe, maybe the thinking would go, uh, they don't deserve hell, but they can't go to heaven. So God makes some some other place it's like an earthly paradise so it's like like they're back in the garden of eden again and so that's where they get to spend uh all of eternity so it was kind of invented as a way this was never taught this was never a doctrine um but it was kind of a theological speculation of you know something that might exist that could help us to explain how we reconcile certain things like john's john john Three five, Jesus says, unless a man be born of water and the spirit, he can enter into heaven, right? Which seems to state that, um, that baptism is absolutely necessary. However, we do see that even Jesus, when he's dying on the cross, one of the thieves next to him, who almost certainly uh, had not undergone baptism, uh, says, you know, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. We just read this this week at mass, in fact, uh, for the feast of Christ the King king of the universe. <laughs> and Jesus says, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so it seems to be the case that, you know, baptism was not strictly necessary for that, that thief. Now, what's interesting also, and I'll come back to that in a second, is when Jesus says, I'll be, you'll be, today you'll be with me in paradise, it's unclear even what his sentence means. Is he just saying, I'm telling you today that you will at some point be with me in paradise. He could be saying that. Or he could be saying, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. Well, we know that, you know, right up here, Jesus didn't go to heaven. He didn't go to what we would consider paradise uh, right away. And so, um, you know, if, if he's saying that uh, he's going to be with him in paradise, he still wasn't speaking about heaven. He was speaking about the, 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 the limbo of some kind where he goes and preaches to the spirits and, and can operate with grace in a unique way there. And, and so here, here's the practical upshot. God gives us the sacraments because he wants us to use them. They are the normative means of us receiving grace. He gives them to us. Our, our drawing to them is grace. It's all active grace. Our reception of them is active grace and cooperation with active grace and a reception of sanctifying grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace, right? However, God himself is not limited to the sacraments. He can work outside of them, and he almost certainly does. Uh, he certainly does. God works outside of the sacraments, but that doesn't invalidate the sacraments or mean that they're not important. It just means that, hey, this is what God has set up. We know he's a God of justice, and you know he's a God of mercy, and we know that he'll take care of things as he sees fit, right? That's his prerogative, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do the things that Jesus tells us. So when he tells us, do this in memory of me, go and baptize all people, right? We need to do the things that Jesus has told us to do, um, and those things do, in fact, merit for us grace, right? They are uh, the actions by which we cooperate with grace to deepen the well of grace. And again, watch my watch my lesson on um um, an analogy for how the sacraments work. I don't remember what I called it, but it'll, I'll probably make it one of the next videos on this. If you look at the playlist for this, uh, RSA playlist. Anyway. Um, so I mean, that's the, that's the long and the short, right? It was, it was a way of trying to reconcile the idea of those who didn't have baptism, but maybe didn't deserve hell. Um, in recent years, a number of people from John Paul, Pope St. John Paul II to Benedict the 16th, Emeritus Pope, um, and I think even Francis have basically spoken out and said, this is, you know, it was a theological speculation. It's one that we don't find very credible. And I never really found it credible as well. Uh, but credible just means believable to have credo, to have, to have faith in something. Um, 
And so, you know, it is something that you theoretically can hold to if you really want to. Um, it's not forbidden to believe. Um, it doesn't absolutely contrast, uh, I guess, with the, the faith. There have been no statements that say you can't believe this. Um, but I think that, especially understanding everything we've talked about with God being justice and mercy and love and desiring the salvation of all, it doesn't make sense, in my opinion. It doesn't really fit with things. And it's just trying to get around what was viewed as kind of a legalism. And that was, again, not the point. The sacraments are not there as legal obligations that are binding on us in a way that prevent us from going to heaven. They're there to help us. They are spiritual aids to 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 supplement the church and to carry out that ministry of reconciliation right that's what the sacraments are for we'll talk about the sacraments in a couple of classes down the road um so that's that right so that's when we talk about limbo that's what we mean limbo of the fathers was a real place doesn't exist anymore limbo of the infants was the theological speculation probably never existed but i understand why people thought it, it existed and so now you know heaven which again is the perfect state of communion with god himself who is love hell which is the perfect state of self-exclusion from God. Um, and then, you know, purgatory, uh, which is, of course, the place we go to be cleansed and ready for heaven. It's, it's a temporary holding uh, that allows us to be ready. It's like an antechamber to heaven that lets you, you know, heaven is spoken of as the wedding banquet. And we're actually told Jesus gives parables about people invited to a wedding banquet who show up and they're not ready for the banquet. They're not in their their, their banquet clothes and they're kicked out, right? Um, and so even, even in these other eschatological and soteriological parables that Jesus gives, being ready for the banquet feast is important and, and, and revelation ends on the wedding feast of the lamb. Uh, that's why Jesus is called the bridegroom, right? In fact, all of scripture begins with... Um, marriage the, the man and the woman the man clings to his wife and the two become one flesh and it ends with a marriage with the bridegroom jesus christ and his church in full consummation of which marriage in this life is only a dim image pointing towards um here's one quick thought just for the sake of it as far as theological speculations go and again theological speculations can be fun um and i don't want to throw anything out there that's going to throw you off in fact i'm tempted just to not do this but i i i anyway so here's a theological speculation if it's the case that purgatory exists in order to make us clean for heaven could it also be the case uh that kind of an anti-purgatory exists so if, if you are hellbound um but you still have good inside of you that uh there is some sort of a state that that rends any good that you have away uh some people i know uh have kind of playfully submitted this idea so it's a theological speculation that tries to answer a question because if, if in hell there is no good and, and that's a presupposition that's not something that absolutely is absolutely sure and in fact i would say it's probably not true precisely because being is a good right and god is the source of all being that he is being right he says to moses i am who am i am being itself right so if you be in heaven or hell you have goodness in you and so the very fact that you exist at all is still even in the state of of exclusion from god still nevertheless ironically is a participation in the goodness of god which is his very being Anyway, I was going to tie that in earlier just with the idea of what a theological speculation would be. So limbo was just like that. It was kind of like, a, well, what would this be? So now we've talked about that. Let's talk about the saints. What is the communion of saints? We believe, according to the Catholic Church, in the communion of all of the faithful of Christ, those who are pilgrims on earth, the dead who are being purified and the blessed in heaven, all forming together one church the body of christ is one it's not separated into parts and we believe that this communion in this communion the merciful love of god and his saints is always attentive to our prayer the church is a family 
All of salvation history is a story of God and the people that he freely chose to create for the sake of sharing his love. He created us to be in communion with him completely, freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully in such a matter. Um, you know, that's what we are designed for, right? And it's the holy family living now in communion with God, which is in heaven. That are the saints, right? That's the, They are the saints. They follow the good fight. They finish the race. We are the children of the Father, and we are brothers of the Son, and we are called to all be part of that living, holy human family in communion with God in heaven. So knowing that the saints are there, we know uh, that the saints are aware of us. Uh, in a lot of different ways, we can see this. Um, I have a couple of examples here for you. Um that I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, but, uh, first off, well, okay, let's talk about that. First off. Yeah. We know that the saints can hear us. Um, uh, we know that they are aware of us. Um, well, first off, we know that we should be praying for each other. Like that's a given. Paul tells us to do this. He exhorts us to pray for other people. He exhorts us to pray for himself. Right. And, and the funny thing about prayer to ask to pray, um, you know, people can't worship for you, but they can ask for you. So when we speak of prayer, we're really speaking of, of asking, right. We're speaking of, of, of asking God for something, you know, dear Lord, please help so-and-so to do such and such or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, somebody, somebody can't worship for you, but, but they can ask for you. This is a very, very biblical model, right? And so we know that the saints are aware of us. So we don't, we're not, we don't worship the saints. We'll come back to the awareness in a minute. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll, I'll do this in order. I, I'm starting to go out of order and I don't want to like skip around and miss a part. So I'll do this in order. Um, we don't worship the saints. Uh, and we don't have the saints worship for us. They are not our creator. They're merely creatures. Um, but we do ask them to intercede for us in the exact same way as I might ask you to pray for me. In fact, hey, if you're watching this video right now and you made it 52 minutes into this video, say a prayer for me because my voice is starting to give out right now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and so the funny thing about, about asking is it, in one sense, it's something we should never have to do, right? Because God knows what we need even before we we ask, right? So, so why do it? Well, obviously there's something about prayer, about asking that is good for us. There's something in the act of uh, a humble submission and, and a request or a petition that more fully conforms us to the image we're supposed to be, to, to the image of, of the bride uh, in response to the bridegroom. As the church, we, we actually, all of us together corporately are feminine uh, because we are the church. We are the receptive uh, aspect uh, that receives the grace of God that, that flows from him. Uh, who is the, whatever the opposite of receptive is, he's the giver, <laughs> the pluripotent source of all goodness. Anyway, um, so it, it certainly isn't a problem to ask people to pray for you in this life, uh, you know, and so it's certainly not a problem to ask the saints to pray for us as well, because again, we have biblical surety that they're aware of us. Uh, Hebrews 11 runs the gamut of the heroes of the Old Testament. Um, I mentioned this in the scripture and tradition class, because of course, um, in Hebrews 11, 27, 37, 25, 35, one of those four passages, I can look it up, but uh, we hear about, you know, people who refused 
who, who were tortured for the sake of a better resurrection. And that's literally the author of Hebrews citing the book of Maccabees that I read to you earlier, as Second Maccabees seven, which we read about a month ago at this point in uh, in the in the church as well. It's an interesting passage because it's, it's a very gruesome scene of a mother and her seven sons, and each one is like tortured and 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 then killed one after another. And the people are actually marveling at you know look at the bravery braveness of these people you know freely facing facing death right. But so so Hebrews eleven gives us the, this gamut of the the heroes of the Old Testament. And then immediately in Hebrews 12, and again, the chapter divisions were not original to the text. It's just the next line. Hebrews 12, 1 says, so since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? We are surrounded by so many people, so many great heroes, and they're called witnesses. What do witnesses do? They witness, right? They are aware. Um, Revelation, actually, in a number of places, I always quote this one, uh, but there's actually a couple of other places, like in Revelation, I want to say Revelation 3 or 4, uh, we see the, the martyrs in heaven watching what's going on on earth and saying, you know, how long, O Lord, until we're vindicated, <laughs> right? Um, but in Revelation 5, we see that there's these elders in heaven, the 24 elders, which seem to probably represent the, the 12 apostles plus the 12 chiefs and chieftains of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 and 12 is 24. There's a bunch of different, again, there's a lot of numerical symbolism inside of uh, the Hebrew mindset. And we see that these elders present the prayers of those on earth who are called saints. They're called holy. The word saint just means holy. Um, and, and they present the prayers of the saints to God like bowls of incense. And actually the angels three chapters later in Revelation 8 do the exact same thing, right? So we know that they're aware of us. And in fact, we know that they can present our prayers to heaven. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, right? Uh, the psalmist sings, you know, praise him, all you angels. Give praise, all you heavenly hosts, right? Uh, invoking all of the, the saints in heaven or, or those who could hear, any that were aware, to 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 pray with him. And we even see uh, a couple of things I haven't added in here. I'll need to add these in here. Um, and I might even add them right now as I'm talking. Um, or I might pause and add them here in a minute. Um, but uh, Jesus, well, actually here, Jeremiah 15 presents us an interesting case. Let me pull this up here. Jeremiah 15. And you'll see this rendered a couple different places because people don't know how to say it. The Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards his people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. So here we actually see God himself talking about Moses and Samuel interceding for the people of Israel, though in this case they weren't successful. Nevertheless, it shows them uh, actually doing it. Uh, so we, we see this notion of, of intercessory prayer from, from the patriarchs of, of the Old Testament. And of course, this actually squares uh, quite clearly uh, with other things we see. So again, at the, the transfiguration uh, of, of Jesus, uh, we see Moses and Elijah, uh, not only alive, but communicating with Christ. And somebody pointed out, this is a guy named Brant Petrie, pointed out uh, why it was Moses and Elijah. And I'd never considered this before. Uh, some people say it's because Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets or something like that. But Moses is actually called a prophet, so that never really sat well with me. But in scripture, there's really two people. There's actually three people. Jacob Israel is the third. But he actually sees God face to face. In fact, that's literally what his name means. Uh, if you remember, we talked about this back when we did Salvation History. But Moses and Elijah both saw God. And they both saw him in a similar way. Uh, God like makes a little hole in the rock and puts them in, in the rock and says, I'm going to walk by and you can look at me from behind, right? You can't see my face, uh, but you can look at me from behind. And so both of them were people who had seen 
God from behind, in, in a sense, these, these these ways that foreshadow the incarnation, like like Jesus ripped outside of time, because he can do that because he's God, and, 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 and working in the Old Testament in mysterious ways. I'm always just fascinated with this, right? But so both Moses and Elijah were never allowed to see the face of God. And now, here at the Transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in his glory. And what do they do? They're talking with him, and they see him face to face. So now, these two who saw him from behind get to see him face to face, having passed on into the other life. And of course, uh, Jesus, uh, at his crucifixion, calls out uh, Psalm 22. Uh, and the author gives us to the gives us this and he calls out in Aramaic. Uh, so it's Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. Um, and, and that's translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And what Jesus is doing, incidentally, again, he's, 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 he's calling out the opening lines of Psalm 22, which is a Psalm that begins with, uh, desperation and, and, and betrayal and, and, and death, but ends in vindication, right? That's the whole point. And so what he's doing is he's calling out a Psalm that anyone listening would have understood in the same way that if I were to, you know, imagine, imagine a, a soldier is about to die for his country and his dying words are, I pledge allegiance to the flag and then he dies right your brain instantly fills in the rest of what he was going to say right because it's so culturally in us to know the pledge of allegiance or if you know here's the story of a lovely lady you know even silly catchy theme songs and jingles your brain instantly fills in the rest well for the jews they knew the psalms they prayed the psalms this was like their liturgical worship book right um so they would have known the Psalms. And when you said that, it'd be just like saying, I pledge allegiance and then dying. People would know. They'd fill in the rest and know, oh, this was, you know, pledge allegiance to the flag, to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. All of that stuff would come into play. And so in this case, all of the story of Psalm 22 would come into play. But what's interesting is those listening uh, who maybe didn't speak Aramaic heard him say, Aloy, Aloy. And they say, is he calling out for Elijah to rescue him? And so literally the the thing that they assume he's doing is calling for the intercession of one of the holy ones and elijah is a unique case because of course uh, he doesn't die in the normal sense he's taken up to heaven in the fiery chariot uh and his authority and power is given to elisha after him who gets a, a double portion of the spirit of god uh, upon him right but so um you know we see the, even the cultural context they understood that that the idea of praying to the saints made sense so much so that in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man it involves the rich man petitioning father Abraham He says, uh, send Lazarus to me, let him dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue that, that the fire might be quenched momentarily. And in this one, actually, he gets denied as well. Uh, Abraham says there's a there's an immeasurable gap, an, an immense gap between us that, that there's there's no way that Lazarus could, could come to you, unfortunately. But he doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, hey, what are you doing, man? You, you can't ask me for something. I'm I'm dead. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? And of course, you know, we know that he's not dead. This is Jesus's reply to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Uh, they denied the resurrection and Jesus answers them with a book that they accept. Uh, he answers them just from the Torah. Have you not seen that it's read? Uh, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living and not of the dead, right? So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're living, right? And ultimately, everyone who has died in friendship with God is a part of the body of Christ is part of the church. They are the saints. You can pray to them. They can hear you. You can pray to them in the sense of you can ask them to pray for you and pray with you. Don't worship them. We don't do that. That is strictly forbidden, right? Um, but yeah, so we can see this idea, this, this, this idea of the saints being aware of us all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament. It is utterly a biblical concept. And to deny that is to deny the very fact of, of scripture, right? Um, let's see here. I will do a couple more things here. Oh, these are my older notes. Shoot. I'm not going to talk about anointing the sick. This is one of the sacraments. I think I, I had to dovetail a few things together at one point. We'll get rid of that. Um, so we'll talk just really, really quickly about relics and then statues. Cause of course, Catholics have those things. Um, relics. Uh, so in, in the sacraments, we have common material things like water, bread, wine, oil, the laying on of hands that result in the giving of grace, of sanctifying grace, the impart real grace. Well, related to the sacraments are things that we call sacramentals, and they are objects like blessed metals, blessed palms, holy water, ashes, etc., rosaries, and their use can lead people to receive or respond to grace. So they are not themselves conduits of grace, but they are things that help us to uh, respond to grace. Um, and also included in the list of sacramentals are, are relics, relics of the saints, like uh, parts of their bodies. Um, and this is very, very common. We, we, we do death very differently these days, but it used to be the case that when someone died, you'd put their put them in a tomb and you leave them there potentially for an entire year. Once they decomposed, you come back and you take their bones and put in what's called an ossuary um, or a bone box. And with the saints, what they would do is they would actually uh, come back and they would take the bones and say, well, this, this was holy, holy so-and-so. Uh, we want his femur. <laughs> we want her, her, her finger. And so the early church was relic crazy um and we can see this in lots of places right we can it, it was you know the things that they touched it was not just not just their their physical bodies but you know personal belongings of them as well uh we see you know a woman is cured of her hemorrhage just by touching the hem of jesus's garment we see that when, when peter's walking by people line up on the streets just so his his shadow will pass over them because the people his shadows touched that his shadow touched would be healed um and we're even told that uh, god did extraordinary miracles by the hands of paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them and so we actually see i mean this is this is this is relic use in in the new testament in a sense this is the use of physical objects uh, as a means to lead people towards the reception of grace etc um which is just kind of a neat thing so you'll you'll find things like relics in uh in scripture you'll find them common in the church uh every single church really has a, a relic or two in them um and in fact, uh, here in, in Atchison, and a lot of places will have this, um, up at the Abbey at least, they have a piece of the true cross. Um, so Constantine's mother, St. Helen, uh, goes to the Holy Land where the, the, the cross of Christ has been um, protected and guarded and being the, the queen or being the mother of the emperor, uh, she's able to basically secure uh, that cross and brought back and then they break off little tiny, tiny, tiny fragments of it. Um, 
and it's dispersed throughout the world. There have been some people who've made this claim that if you were to take all the pieces of the true cross and put them together, the cross would have been like a thousand feet tall or whatever. Um, it's certainly possible that there were forgeries at one point. Um, but in actuality, all the pieces that we currently have would make up a beam that's about four feet tall. Like that's not, it's not actually nearly as much as, as what you might think. And ultimately sacramentals are just that they're objects that because they're related to the things that are holy. They lead us to receive grace, sometimes in, in miraculous ways, but oftentimes just in the normal ways. Right? They lead us to grace in the same way that hanging a picture of Jesus on your wall or Mary on your wall will remind you to, to be holy. You know, when you're working, uh, you look up and, and you see Jesus looking at you you're like, oh, yeah, I should I should you know, not type that mean email. <laughs> I should I should not think those those mean things. Or maybe I should take five minutes and, and say a quick prayer. Right. Um, so you'll see these, uh, we do have, there's different classes of relics. First class relic is a relic that's actually a piece of the saint itself. A second class relic is a piece of something that they owned, like a piece of their clothing. And then a third class relic is anything that was touched to either a first or second class relic. So it's like something that came in contact with a, with a relic, um, which is kind of a neat concept anyway. Um, so again, we, we venerate the saints in order to honor them. Uh, St. Paul says, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. And so uh, much as we imitate uh, imitate Paul, we imitate all of the apostles uh, and all of the holy men and women who have led good uh, and holy lives. And by being imitators of them, we've built up the church. And that's why Tertullian says, you know, in the early church, it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church, right? The, the people saw the, the amazing witness of these people who laid down everything to follow the gospel. And they were utterly attracted to it, even though it meant a life of suffering. You know, it didn't mean, it didn't mean riches and glory and fame and power and honor. It meant embracing suffering. And yet they were willing to do it because they saw that it was the truth. Um, as Catholics, we love art. We love statues. In the East, they don't do a lot of statues. The Orthodox, they tend to use icons, which are painted, or, or as they call them, they, they say they're written, uh, written icon, uh, even though it's an image. Uh, in, the, in the West, uh, we've always been fans of, of art. We've been fans of uh, statues, which is why we as Catholics have lots of statues everywhere. And because we have statues, some people are want to raise an objection. They say, uh, you know, you Catholics have statues in your church, so you're violating God's commandment that you'll make for yourself, you know, no graven image of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the question becomes, are we breaking that commandment? Because if we are, that's a problem. Um, well, the first thing to bear in mind is why would Israel even need this prohibition, right? And they needed this because in, in the ancient times, it was very, very common to want to, um, I'm going to say this in the wrong way, to want to wanna anthropomorphize God who had not yet revealed himself as God. In fact, that's his very uh, thing to them. He says, for I, for when I led you out of Egypt, you, you should make no graven image of uh, for yourself because when I led you out of Egypt, I had not revealed my form to you. So he didn't want them to try to, you know, guess at what form God would take. And when they did, they always got it wrong. You know, they would make him as as a, as a golden bull, right? And then they would bow down to the bull, um, or as a, as a serpent, a bronze serpent, and they would, they would worship the serpent. And, and so they would, they would take what they thought were laudable qualities in created creatures, the strength of a bull, the cunning of a snake or whatever, and they would worship those things and it would obscure and make unclear, uh, who God was and what his nature was. But in, so this is Exodus 20 when he says this five chapters later, he gives the commandment to make the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
um, they try to stay pretty pretty true to the to the, to the image. But the the Ark of the Covenant is a big gold box. We'll actually talk about this next class when we talk about Mary. Um, and in it, uh, it, it above it, it had uh, angels. They're like five foot tall. These are these look really tiny in this picture, but these are supposed to be like you know five foot tall angels on top of this uh, this giant box. And then in the box were three things: uh, the bread that had come down from heaven, uh, the law of the Lord written on the stone tablets, and the the staff of the high priest Aaron uh, that had budded and was part of uh, the the miracles that that he would wrought. And of course. Um, what we'll see is all of those things prefigure Jesus, who is the true bread come down from heaven, the true high priest and the law of the Lord fulfilled, uh, in the flesh. Right. And so just as, um, Jesus is just as the, the ark in a sense points towards Jesus, it also points towards Mary, who was the encasing, the beautiful encasing for the things that were inside. So just as the ark carried in it, those three things, Mary carried in herself, Jesus. So Mary will talk next class about how she actually is prefigured by the, the ark of the covenant. We actually will call Mary and the, the early church fathers did this. They called her the ark of the new covenant, which is really kind of neat. But the point is God commanded, you know, make for yourself, you shall not make for yourselves any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or that's under the water, right? And five chapters later, he says, make, <laughs> make images of angels that are things in, in heaven above, right? And what gives, right? How how is this the case that 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 God did God just change his mind? Did did he contradict himself? No, the the simple point is he's trying to make sure that they don't fall into idolatry, but he doesn't have a problem with the use of imagery in worship done correctly. Uh, the temple we see also uh, has all sorts of uh, golden chariots and cherubim and all sorts of things over it as well. Uh, a little bit later, when they're in the desert in, in Numbers twenty one, God actually says uh, the 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 people are being disobedient. And so the a plague of, of seraph serpents, that word seraph, incidentally, I mentioned earlier, the, the highest choir of angels are called the seraphim that behold the face of God. They're called the burning ones. Well, the serpents that beset the Israelites are called the seraph serpents, the burning serpents. So they, they bite them and their, their bite would burn terribly. And if a bidding man, if he, he, he looks at this bronze serpent, God says, create this, this bronze serpent erected on a pole. And if anyone is bitten by the burning serpent, <laughs> which is an image of, of, of the devil, if ever there was one, right? And he looks towards the 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 dead serpent lifted up on the pole. Uh, he will be saved. And then Jesus himself tells us that as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man. Literally, the serpent, the dead serpent on a pole lifted up that people look towards to save themselves from the bite of the fiery serpent is itself a type of Christ. It prefigures Christ. It foreshadows Christ. I mean, there's, there's so many levels deep that you can go in this stuff, which is why it's so fascinating. It's why I do what I do. It's why I talk about this stuff all the time. Because the deeper you go, you find a new level. You find something you didn't realize. And you just go deeper and deeper and deeper. So absolutely, statues and images are not forbidden, but they are controlled in the Old Testament. And, and they're controlled precisely because, again, God had not revealed to us uh, what form he would take. But of course, in the New Covenant, we know what form he takes. He takes the form of a man. Um, I think it was the, the ancient formula, God became man that man might become God, right? We are destined for communion, for complete communion with, to become one with God in a real way. Um, and that is an utterly amazing, miraculous, uh, and, and super powerful thing. 
So we have statues because statues are, at the end of the day are just art. And those are art, kind. they're sacramentals. They're things that lift the mind and lift the heart towards God and remind us to always keep the holy things in front of us. Now, some Catholics have a form of piety that goes a little bit further than that. Um, you will see uh, stat. You still you'll see Catholics obviously kneeling in front of a statue and praying. That's not them praying to the statue. Um, that's them praying to God or praying to the saints to, to ask them to intercede for them. Right? They're not. They know the statue is a statue. They could do it whether the statue is there or not. They oftentimes do. Uh, but if they happen to have the the statue in front of them, if they happen to have art that they can look on to, to meditate on and, and, and lift their mind up to God, then that's all that they're really doing, right? And some Catholics will even kiss a statue or touch a statue, right? But it's not because, again, it's not because they think that the statue is a person or that they think the statue is a god by any means uh, or anything like that. But it's simply a way of showing reverence towards the saint for which one is is longing or desiring. And and I can give you an analogy that'll help this make perfect sense. Imagine a soldier in a far off country, he's in a foxhole, he's about to, you know, jump up and run to the next one in front of him and, and he might get shot. He doesn't know. So before they they call for the charge, he takes out a, a a picture from his pocket of his wife and he looks at it, he kisses it, and he says, I love you, and he puts it in his pocket and then runs. Now, has he just committed adultery or or worse, idolatry? No, of course not. He knows that, that picture is not his wife. He certainly knows that picture is not God. He knows the picture can't even hear him, but he kisses it and says, I love you, because he's honoring his wife and he's reminding himself. He's living lifting himself up in a sense, uh, and he's reminding himself of the things for which he is fighting, the things for which he is struggling. And so when you see Catholics do even things like that, that's almost always 100% what it is they're doing and why it is they're doing it. So it's not in any way idolatrous. They're not worshiping at all uh, those those creatures, but they are simply uh, lifting their hearts up to God through beauty and through art. And that is a fine, good, and commendable thing. Thus endeth our class on heaven, hell, all stops in between, and the communion of the saints. Again, I'll have a class up. Um, actually, it's probably already live right now about Mary right after this. And then I'll have a class about the sacraments, um, or at least understanding sacramental economy, just to kind of explain some of the stuff I talked about in this class and leading into our discussion about the sacraments, which will be coming shortly. Uh, as usual, if you have any questions, let me know. Feel free to leave your comments down below. And until then, God bless you. I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves.